All right, so uh, before we start, we're just going to pray real quick. Dear Lord, uh, thank you that we can gather here and that we can learn about you. Um, Help us to take everything uh, that we discussed tonight and to apply it to our lives and to learn about you from it and uh, help help us to use it to further your word and the gospel and to spread your love through the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are still doing Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, going through the book, and this is the last night we're going to look at it, and we are going to finish the last um, two sections in it. We're not going to do the epilogue, although it's very good, and it talks about what happens after his conversion. We, I will, though, continue reading them, so then if you want to watch them, they will, it'll just take me time, because there's still, I'm probably about still five chapters to go, and then the epilogue, and there's a couple other, um, uh, there's a little section where his wife talks about, like a chapter where she talks about him and stuff, so that will still be up there for you guys to watch if you want. Um... So, let's review, though, before we begin. What is, what, what is this book about? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what does that mean? He was a Muslim, and then he became a Christian. Okay. Who? who? Anybody remember his name? Nabil Qureshi. And like Evan said, he was a Muslim. He was born and his fam into his family that followed Islam, the religion of Islam. And what are some of the things that are the um, the trademarks of Islam? If you were to describe it to somebody in a couple sentences, how would you describe Islam? Okay, that's that's a good way to describe it. What does that mean to you when you say a traditional religion? Okay, they they are legalistic. A lot of um, um, thinking of the right word. Um, we'll just say traditional traditions. And what are some of those traditions? Yeah. Praying specific amount Okay, specific prayers. What is what is um, different about those prayers from our prayers? Okay, why are they not personal? Right. It is a memorized prayer, right? It's not, you're not ad-libbing, you're not speaking from your heart. It's not whatever you want to say. It's a prayer. Usually it's a prayer that Muhammad had prayed at some point. And they are not necessarily in the Quran, but they are in what? We've talked a little, we haven't really um, dug deep on this part of it, but. Extra 
Yes, you're right. There are extra books. What are the extra books about? Muhammad's life, and they're called hadiths, H-A-D-I-T-H, hadith. And I don't know what the like the direct translation is for what that word means, but it's basically histories of Muhammad's life. Okay, so that's where they get a lot of their prayers from. Uh, what else about their religion? What are some other things? What are other things they believe? Okay. What? So let's say in contrast, because that helps us describe it. Right? Helps you to think about it and describe it better. What, in contrast to what we believe about Jesus, what's, why is that different? Okay, they think he is just human, right? He is not the Son of God. He is not God. He is just a regular man, and he is a prophet like Muhammad. So what he says is... Okay, right, it's God-given, it's true, but what do they think... Um, why do they think then Muhammad came after Jesus? What's important about Muhammad coming afterwards? Okay, yes, that's right. It also has to do with, we talked about the verses in the Quran, that there are certain verses that they negate previous ones. Remember talking about that a little bit? That they like, there are, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Um, let's, I can't remember a specific one, but let's say there was, I think there was a verse that talks about where Muhammad says you are only allowed to have, um, four wives and that's all you're allowed to have. But then what magically happens for Muhammad? He's allowed to have seven wives. So that's an example of he later gets another verse that negates that. So what about the Quran about Muhammad's prophetic things is important that for them that it comes after Jesus? Okay. Yes, so they think that who who do we think that person or personality to give you a hint. The Holy Spirit. Jesus was talking about the comforter who was going to come. And if you look at the context, it's pretty obvious that it's not Muhammad. But they say that it was Muhammad that was prophesied. But the other thing I'm trying to get at is that, remember, they think that the Bible has been corrupted. Remember, they think that it's not the original um, version, that it's been lost. And that's why the Quran was sent to fix all that to give you the true meaning of things. Okay. Um, what else about there? What are some other hallmarks of Islam? Monotheistic. Yes. So that's something we share with them, right? Monotheistic. There is one God. What's the difference, though? 
This is a huge sticking point for why they are uh, opposed to Christianity. Okay, what do they say about the Trinity? They say, if it's one, why is Right. And they say, why are there three people? That is polytheism, which would be poly being many, theism being, um, or theus, or theo being God, and then ism is belief. So they're saying you believe in many gods, and why do, is that the case? What, what do you say to that? Okay, but did did Nabil like that one? No. No. Wasn't like he like a science class? Yes. And he was like looking at something like a microscope or something. Kind of. They were looking at things you can't even see with a microscope. They were looking at atoms, right? The an an atomical I don't know structure of nitrate. I think it was, and what, what did, do you remember what the professor, what she said about the nitrate with the molecules that are revolving around the nucleus? She said that at any one time, these, none of these molecules are in the same spot, but they, um, but in theory, they are all they can all possess like be pos like possessing that same space in time so very um, remember he has two PhDs so he's a smart guy that stuff speaks to him he understands it that's way beyond me with understanding it but for him you mean you know I look at nature like just uh, the sunrise or some plant that it's amazing how it grows or some animal that is just perfectly created to do what it says and that part of nature speaks to me. For him, the microscopic the or beyond microscopic, that spoke to him proclaiming that God was real and these um, these truths that are almost like <clears throat> hidden treasures found throughout nature that point to God. So that's something that pointed, that spoke to him about the Trinity that kind of made him think, okay, this is, a, this fits into the laws of nature or the laws of the universe that I can see how there can be one being that has these three personalities, which are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Okay. Won't dwell too long on that. Um, so, one other thing before we move on tonight that I'd like to review because it kind of comes into play. How do Muslims believe they can interact with God? Now we talked a little bit. We talked about their um, their prayers, right? But what is what are those prayers if they're just reciting the same thing? Because we talked about this a little bit. Because we do a similar thing. What's the similar thing that we do? About things that you do to God or for for His enjoyment, but 
every time you do the almost the exact same thing. Singing, right? We talked about that. You're not, I mean, you could, but you're not up there making up your own lyrics, right? You're saying the same lyrics that you always sing to this same tune, right? And they're doing the same thing with the prayers. Nothing wrong with that, right? But what is that kind of interaction with God called, or what we would call it? Worship, right? Okay? We're declaring things that we find <clears throat> that we find amazing or that we love or that we are endeared to about God, okay? Truths about God. Um, what are the, some other ways, though, that they Muslims think they can interact with God, with Allah, with? There's not a lot. They don't have a lot of ways, which is one of the, I guess, um, differences for Christianity. It was way back in the beginning. I think it was chapter part one or part two of our series. It's a way that also Christians interact with God. People in the Bible have interacted with God in this way, where God has given them a message through this. What? Visions and dreams. dreams. Yes, visions and dreams. Remember, what did Nabil have way early on? Remember what he had? He went back to Scotland where he grew up. He was looking for his friends. He saw what? Oh, not an arrow, but it was like... Um, like these colors, like these streams of colors that led him. You would have had to have watched it. It was one when you guys weren't here, where it was totally virtual. But he had this vision where he was in the marketplace at a Muslim festival in Scotland, and he was looking for his friends, and this was the first time he ever prayed a prayer where he wasn't just reciting something. It was just him saying, ah, I need help right now, God. And he said, how am I going to find my friends? I haven't seen them in five years. I don't even know what they look like anymore. I might not recognize them. Shh, help me find them. And you know, all of a sudden he has this like purple and red streams that he sees like through the air, like, I don't know, like airbender thingies or whatever. And he follows them and it leads them right to where his friends are and he meets them. So that's his first real like interaction with God. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we pick up in the series. We're coming full circle back to the same type of thing in the book where um, we have looked at a whole lot of historical information. And there's way more out there. We did not cover it all. I mean, I have probably not, not just... I did listen to some of them and prep for this, but... I've listened to probably 20 hours or more of like debates about the Quran and Christianity versus Muslims' beliefs and things. There's so much information out there. You could spend your whole life studying it, and there's tons of people who have. And we looked at these historical and theological figures of Jesus and Muhammad, comparing them as far as what history says about them. And... 
We've looked at the validity of the Bible versus the Quran, whether what the what is put in it is accurate to the original. But <clears throat> in all this investigation of those things put Nabil on this path intellectually and through his mind to come to the realization, okay, these things that I have investigated are true, the gospel is true, and he really was almost forced to admit it, to say, okay, it's true, I can't, um, <clears throat> I can't deny that it's true. But there's one more, much more important aspect that would change him forever, and that is his spiritual life in Jesus. Okay, that's the part that he hasn't tapped into yet. He's just come to it intellectually, he's accepted it. And you'll see this with a lot of other people. C.S. Lewis was the same way. He intellectually came to <clears throat> realize the Bible was true. But then he had to go down a whole nother path of interacting and reaching that truth spiritually and with his soul with God, okay? So what is compelling now through this section of the book is how God does this, how he makes that spiritual connection with Nabil. And it shouldn't be... Um, so amazing to us because we know that God is limitless in his power. He's limitlessness in his creativity and his knowledge and his love. But the way that he knows our needs and meets us and directs us to where we can finally see the light in the clearest way is when everything else around us is dark. That's when it shows up the brightest. Um, you prob you, maybe you've experienced this yet in your life. If not, I hope you continue on and you do. But oftentimes when you have the greatest interactions with God is when things around you in your world are just weighty and overbearing and just everything is crashing around you. Okay, and that is what Nabil is experiencing now in his mind. He talks about every moment where he is, everything is normal throughout the day, and then when the light, he turns off the light at night, he lies there in bed and he is just constantly thinking about Christianity and Islam and how, he, how he's going to deal with this now that he's recognized that Christianity is true. How am I going to reconcile this in my life? He can't stop thinking about it. Um, if one of you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And then somebody else can turn to Jeremiah 29, 13 and hold that there. 2 Peter 3, 9? Yes. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay. What's what's that mean to you, Gabe? Uh, 
you were to put that verse in your own words. The slackness is, um, another translation for that would be slowness, or slow. What was that? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that you all reach repentance. Right, exactly. He, it's not that he has given up on you, although it might seem like it, but you have to be patient for his timing. It, it might seem slow to you, but it's really not. It's not. He is just allowing things in your life to line up. Like, like I said before, the light is going to be clearest to you when it's the darkest around you. He is aligning events in your life for those things to happen. But you also have to be looking for it. All right? You have to be looking for it. Somebody go ahead and read Jeremiah 29, 13 now. And you shall see me and find me when you shall serve for me with all your heart. That was very good. Good. That one's pretty clear, right? No explanation for that, right? And that's exactly what Nabil has done. Throughout this book, he's not somebody who has been like... I don't want God. I don't need God. He's always been, I want God. I'm focused on him. He just is in this religion that really doesn't have much of a relationship with God. And it's, it is one of those weird things where maybe God, Allah, is like the Christian God, the Father. There's some similarities, right? Ishmael who is the father of the Arabs, where Islam comes from, you know, he was Abraham's son who followed God, the real God. But it's become twisted where, and to the point where they believe that Jesus is not the son of God. So he has this weird, he's living in almost this lie, okay? But looking for the truth. So God knows that from when Nabil was first born, Remember that his dad, right when he was born, took him there in the hospital and whispered in his ear, uh, um, I don't remember, but a Muslim verse from the Quran. They do that with every child, but that's the first thing they hear is a verse from the Quran. Okay? And it's like, this is weird. But it's not that strange, all right? If you, if you knew that one of your parents picked a verse from the Bible that they knew was true and they wanted that to be the first thing you heard even though you know you're a baby and you can't hear it that would be okay I get I understand why they you know they would want to do that it would it might be a little odd but you would understand the sentiment behind it okay so he's raised in this environment where with the Muslim culture and God knows that in that culture they they believe God speaks to them through dreams and remember Nabil's dad had tons of dreams. Had them all the time. He got to a point where, and they came true. Remember the one with the, where he, him and his friends were going to take a test? And he had a dream about them running and like jumping a fence. And only him and one of his other friends made it and the other two didn't. 
and then only him and his other friend were the ones who passed the test, like this actual test they had. Yeah, he had all sorts of, and I don't, I can't explain why those were true, why those dreams came true or whatever, or why he even had them. But he got to a point where he said, God, please stop giving me dreams. I don't want to know anymore. This is craziness. So it's not something, it's something he's used to, okay? So God uses that. He reaches him where he's at. And the first um, vision that he has is a field of crosses. And this one is a vision, not a dream, meaning that he was in his hotel room. It was dark at night. He was thinking about Christianity. His father had just fell asleep in the bed next to him. And he's sitting up at night in the dark. But you know how it's dark sometimes and you can still kind of make out where objects are in the room? Well, all of a sudden it goes pitch black all around him. And he wasn't asleep. He's awake sitting on the edge of his bed. And there's tons of like white crosses in front of him, just all over. Almost, in my mind, I picture um, like the white crosses in France for D-Day. That's what I picture. But something like that that he sees, and that's all he sees. And then I, for, he sees it for a while, and then it goes away. Back to this regular room, okay? And, um, and he is like, whoa, what is this? He's like, well, this must mean that that Christianity's real. And then he's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe this is telling me that it's not true. And he's like, maybe this is... Um, oh, wow, that worked out good. Um, he's... And he goes back and forth. He plays devil ad, devil's advocate in his mind. And then he, like, the reason side, he's like, you're just really tired. You're jet lagged. Like, your mind is just playing tricks on you. I mean, what happened was weird, right? Anybody might think that. So that's all well and good. Well, he, um, he says to God that night, he's like, that doesn't count, God. He says, that's not enough. If, he's like, I, that's not enough for me to throw away my family. Because remember, what does a Muslim family typically do if they're devout Muslims and you abandon Islam? They disown you. They stop talking to you. And if you live in a Muslim-like country, like in the Middle East, they might even kill you. Okay? That's how serious it is. So he's saying... This is this one vision's not enough for me to say to accept Christianity and leave my faith that I've grown up with. He says, that doesn't count. I want a dream. And he says, I want three dreams, God. If you give me three dreams that prove that you are real, that Jesus is your son, then I'll I'll consider it, okay? Well, that very night he has the first dream after this vision, which is crazy. I know, we haven't even read this yet, so this is all spoiler alert stuff. Um, But we'll get there. But I'm going to read you this one here, because this is a, this one is just like jumps off the page. It's crazy. Okay. So this is him telling his mom the dream after the night after he wakes up. This, this, um, and he knows that the, this, this is a symbolic dream. He realizes that immediately when he wakes up. In the beginning of the dream, there was a poisonous snake with red and black bands going around it. 
separated by thin white stripes. All it did was hiss at people when they stepped into the garden. The people in the garden couldn't see it. It was far away watching from a perch on a stone pillar. This pillar was across a chasm or like a gorge. The perch then became my vantage point for the first half of my dream. In the garden-like area with hills and lush green grass and trees, there was a huge iguana, like a dragon. It would lie still and hide and become like a hill. No one who walked on it knew it was an iguana. If they had known, they would be scared. But the iguana liked the fact that no one knew. Then a boy, a giant boy, came, and this giant boy knew the iguana was an iguana, and he stepped on it, accusing it of being an iguana. The iguana got angry, so he reared back to bite the giant boy, who had stepped on its tail. As the iguana was about to bite the boy, the boy had a huge cricket that challenged the iguana to fight. My vantage point changes now. I am directly beneath the iguana, looking up at its head. The iguana nodded and accepted the challenge, as, and as the cricket flew away to a fighting place, the iguana turned to me and tried to lunge at me and kill me. The cricket saw the iguana was lunging at me, so he came back and bit its head off, decapitating it. Okay, obviously, weird dream, symbolic dream. Um, yeah, you've probably all had weird dreams, and I will tell you, I have known, I won't say who because I don't, because you won't, they won't want you asking them about it. But I have known people who have had dreams where afterwards they, they were weird like this, where they were like, that was weird, and this is, kind, this is definitely symbolic of this, like, of like the different things. Like, not that it was telling them what to do or anything, but it was just uncanny how it described the situation for them. Okay, So... He kind of starts to fit these pieces together. He says, I think, and it's, he's super smart because the way he jumps to these conclusions is great. He's like, the garden is the world. I think the snake on the pill, stone pillar symbolized evil. What could that be? He's like, I'm pretty sure the iguana is Islam. And, and he's, he's like, I'm not sure who the... So here's the crazy thing. He calls his mom, Ami, is what mother that's just their word for mother um and she has because they're into dreams she has this book by some muslim guy that has all these different things like it might have a giraffe and it says if it's a giraffe it means that you have prosperity coming your way like it's kind of like weird i don't know like um what are the astrological signs like? It's almost like that, but like a Muslim version. Okay. And he asks her, because he doesn't want to tell her the dream, because he doesn't want his parents to find out what he's struggling with. But he's like, I had this dream. I'll tell you about later. Just, I got, can you just tell me what a couple of these things? And she's like, it doesn't work like that. You have to tell me the whole dream so I know the context. And he's like, mom, just tell me this one. And he says, he says, um, like, what's... Um, hold on, I'm trying to get to it. Okay, he, the first one he says, he says, is it, um, the first one's a snake, and she gasps, and she's like, what kind of dream is this? Like, obviously, it's a bad thing. And she's like, is the snake in water? Is it sleeping? Is it eating? What's it doing? And 
she says, okay, the snake is means a deceptive or avowed enemy. And if the snake eats someone or someone turns into a snake, it can mean something else. Um, in the end, it means that a person questioning religion. And then she says, he's, he's like, what? And then he, she's like, well, tell me more about it. And he's like, well, it was on a pillar. What's that mean? She's like, well, a pillar is symbol, a symbol for someone's religion. And he's like, oh, my gosh. He's, and then she's and then she's like, well, what's the pillar made of? He's like stone. And she's like, oh, this is weird. As she's reading, she's like, the book says a stone pillar means someone's religion or the way the world is changing. Their religion and the way they see the world is changing quickly. Like, it gets crazy. He Everything lines up with exactly where he is. And you'll just have to listen to it to, to when I do this chapter. But it gets to the point where the iguana is there's not exactly an iguana in there but there is a monitor lizard in there so they use that instead and she says that that is it means a cruel hidden enemy who's very great and fearsome but if it's challenged it will fail because of inability to provide proof and he's like that's islam it can't prove itself i've found it to be false and the boy represents David, like the way it's described, that he is David. And then he's like, also, there is no cricket in the book, but there's a locust. So they use that instead. So he's like, all right, but everything fits so perfect at the, by the end. And he's like, but the cricket and the iguana, they don't, why aren't they perfect? If God sent me this dream, why wouldn't they be the perfect things to fit it? And then he's like, Hmm, cricket, iguana, cricket, C-R-I, Christianity, Islam. And he's like, ah. Oh. Because he kind of doesn't want it to be true, right? It means he has to throw away everything that he's grown up with, his family. Okay, so you just have to read, watch the rest of that one, because it's nuts. It's, like, there's no doubt that it is, was God speaking to him. So he has another one, the next dream. Um, this one is like two months later, so it's not right away. Again, God's timing, right? He's not always giving you your answer right away. This dream he has is about a doorway. And it says, this is the dream. I'm standing at the entrance of a narrow doorway that is built into a wall of brick. I am not in the doorway, but just in front of it. The doorway is an arch. I would say the doorway is about seven and a half feet tall and about six and a half feet of its sides being straight up from the ground. And there is a one foot archway at the top capping it off. The doorway is slightly less than three feet wide and about three or four feet deep, all brick, just enough for one person to go through. It leads into a room where many people are sitting at tables and have fancy and good food on them. I think I remember salads, but I'm not sure. They were not eating, but they were all ready to eat, and they were all looking to my left, as if waiting for a speaker to before the banquet. One of the people at the other side of the door, just inside the room, is David Wood, his friend. I am unable to walk into the room because David is occupying the other threshold of the doorway. He is sitting at a table and is also looking to my left. I asked him, I thought we were going to eat together. And he said, without removing his eyes from the front of the room, 
you never responded. So he calls David right away and tells him, because he told him the other dream too, of course, and asks him about it. And this is, they talk a little bit about it. And this is David's response. He says, Nabil, this dream is so clear, it doesn't need to be interpreted. His words immediately reminded me of what I had prayed to God a few days earlier, asking for more. He told me to read Luke, read Luke thirteen twenty-two. And this is what it, or the version he read a NIV version, and he got to the passage. It's a study Bible, you know, study Bibles. If some of you have them, sometimes have little blurbs on the side, and this one says for that section, the narrow door. <laughs> happened that that was the Bible he had. And he says, um, this is what he read. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said unto them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. Then there will be weeping there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of heaven, but you yourselves thrown out, people will come and eat or come from east, west, north, and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. So his dream is exactly about that reference. It was clear as day to date to David. Probably, hopefully it was to you guys too, or you say an inkling of that being reminiscent of something you've read before. And he knows now the narrow door is salvation. All he has to do is to respond to the invitation to enter through. He, and he says at the end of this chapter, there is no question left. I knew what I had to do. I had to accept the invitation. Now, he has one more dream after this. And I'm not going to read this one, but I'll just tell you that basically there is, in the dream, he's in a mosque, which is the Muslim church. And he's there, they're having a service, and there's a stairway that leads out of the mosque. And um, he tells... um, He tells David this one also, and he's like, David's just like, you know what it means, Nabil. Like, I don't, I don't have to tell you anything more. Like, you already know. It's pretty clear what you have to do. And he just kind of left it at that. He wasn't going to beat it over his head because kind of God is already doing that for him by sending him the dreams that keep meaning it. But what do all these dreams really mean, though, for Nabil. What's it mean for him if he accepts Christ? Yeah. Total abandonment. Okay? Um, And... If you think, you might be thinking, well, this would never happen to me, or this isn't something 
that I would experience in my case, you know, my whole family is Christians, maybe many generations have been Christians, you know, they wouldn't abandon me or think badly of me for following Christ. But not that I'm making a comparison to Nabil's life, but the principle that Jesus teaches that in order to follow me, you are going to have to, he says, you will have to leave your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. He actually talks about a knife, which is actually interpreted as a knife that's used for dividing things, like for cutting up meat. Like if you were to, um, if you were to like butcher something, that's not like in a violent way, but that it is dividing things in half. And that that is what Jesus is, is, that he is, can cause a division among people, but <clears throat> that is something that even you could experience, okay? I mean, I will say that even for me, there are family members that that think that all of my decisions and how I choose to do my life, that that's not what they think is the best way or whatever, you know? And in the end, your decision, your accountability to God is your own. They don't know what, where you stand with God, what he's telling you to do. That is just between you and God, okay? They might have an idea of what they think God should have for you in life, but in the end, that's, a, that's only God can tell you what that is, okay? Just, just to kind of put a picture in your mind of what, uh, how you might be able to relate to it. So, he is now at the point where he is, says that he almost had to deal with like a morning time where he had to, not like sunrise morning time, but like um, a sad time for him of dealing with processing this that I'm going to have to accept Jesus and that's going to be a dividing point. Not because I'm trying to divide them off, but because they, if you don't accept Jesus, it, it becomes a natural barrier. It will just, it will be that way. And the first time he, so he's having, really dealing with this, and he, his heart is broken at this point. And the first time he actually reads the Bible for help is during this time. Every other time, he's just looked at it historically, like we did before. But this time, he is so desperate, he first goes to the Quran and he's like, reads a couple things, he's like, this is nothing. And then he goes to the Bible. And he, uh, what he turns to is he turns to the New Testament and to the beginning of Matthew. He figured that was a good place to to start, And within a few minutes, he found these words that you're probably familiar with. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The words were like a current 
sent through my dead heart, electrifying it once more. This was what I was looking for. It was as if God had written these words in the Bible 2,000 years prior, specifically with me in mind. And then he goes on and he reads, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the righteous. He says, not blessed are the righteousness, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember, Islam is very legalistic, like we talked about. It's about you must be righteous, not that it's enough for you to believe or enough for you to want to be righteous, but your every move is scrutinized. And then he reads, um, then he realizes that God loves me so much even in my failures. And then the tears start to flow, but they were tears of joy because he had found worth. He had found value, found where uh, he could be loved despite his sins. And this is the point at which, um, by God's hand, his words and God's words are alive. Like he said, 2,000 years ago, these were written, but they're alive for me today, and they can penetrate his soul and speak to him. And he begins to rely on God instead for his strength and joy. And it culminates um, and is finally released in him when he is crying out to God later. This isn't like everything was fixed at this point. Later, he still dealing with that his family is going to abandon him when he tells them. They're not going to talk with him anymore. And he's saying, why me? Why me? Why am why do I have to suffer like this? It's not fair. And at that point, he hears God's voice say to him, because it's not about you. All this time, he's been focusing on why it sucks for him and why things are terrible for him. And then God says, you know what? It's not about you. And at that point, he said his whole perspective changed. It was like there was a switch. And that when he went outside from his apartment that day, he saw a person and it just struck him for the first time. He said, that person is someone else who is broken and who hurts and they also need a God who loves him. It totally changed his perspective. And now that he was focused on others that led into serving others, that's where joy and worth sprung up inside of him. If you focus on yourself, you'll never feel fulfilled, ever. Just a sidebar. So, this is not to say that from that point on that everything was sunshine and roses for Nabil. His family, when he finally, the word gets out to them, he really didn't want to tell them. You'll find out through um, just God's hand that his parents find out, found out because he wasn't home and he forgot to lock his apartment, which he never did, and saw on his computer, which he never leaves unlocked, like with a password screen, that he messaged someone telling them that he was thinking about being baptized soon. So that's how they found out, and they waited till he came home in his apartment. And they were they said a few hurtful things, like his dad said, all he, his dad said was, Nabil, I feel like my spine has been ripped out. And his mother ends up being the harshest one. His, 
They don't, there's a time after he's baptized and he just tells them he's not going to be a doctor, that he's going to go into Christian apologetics, you know, preaching the gospel at colleges where they don't talk to him for like six months at all. And they really don't see each other much. His dad starts to come around a bit more and things, eventually they get kind of a more normal relationship even with all of them. But even later when Nabil finds a girl, um, she's also a Christian and they decide they want to get married and his parents won't give him the blessing. His mom is like, why, do you, why can't you find at least a Christian Pakistani girl? Why has it got to be a white girl, basically? And his mom is very hard on him. And it is, um, he, and that's not even the end of it. At the wedding, his parents won't come to it. Only four cousins and an uncle of his side of the family show up to it. I mean, you guys haven't experienced that yet, but... And you can try to imagine if your family didn't come to one of the biggest events in your life. Just think of something closer in, in range if your family did not come to graduation for you. I mean, some of you might be like, great, that'd be awesome. But, but it's like they don't, it's a very physical statement of saying, of, of you feeling like they don't love you. And then in 2016, Nabil is diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. And about halfway through this, he, um, he speaks, I think it was at a church, and he looks really sick. And I, I remember watching this, because I found out about him and read his book before he had cancer. I remember... Um, just we were following along, hoping that he was getting better, and found out he did this speech, and I watched it on YouTube. And halfway, and he's just talking about his struggles. It's extremely raw, and he doesn't have answers, and he's just talking through all the stuff he's struggling with with this. And what really struck me that I don't, I don't think I'll ever forget what he said, but he. Basically, what he said was, my concern is that if I die from this, that my parents will see this as Allah's punishment on me. Basically, because you became a Christian, Allah gave you cancer. That you were weighed in that balance, as we talked about, that your good deeds have now been outweighed by your bad, and you got cancer because of that. And that was the thing that he was most concerned about that his parents would, this would be vindication for them and just justification for not becoming Christians. Well, in 2017, at 34, Nabil dies. And he leaves behind his wife, Michelle, and his daughter, who I think was about two, Aya. And the question that everyone wonders and still wonders is why was Nabil's life cut short? If he was such a champion for Jesus and preaching the gospel, he probably spoke at least a thousand times at colleges and all over the world 
speaking and and being a hero for Muslims who are looking at Christianity as a real option for them, as the true option. But who knows why his life was cut short? I don't know. I can't even begin to guess why. But I do know that he lives, that Nabil lives again in eternity with Jesus. There's no doubt about that. And if there's one thing to say about Nabil, is that he never gave up on seeking for the true God. That was his number one thing, was the true God. And he found it in Jesus, and he really burned hot with the fire of the Holy Spirit in him. You can go out there and you can find YouTube videos of him speaking if if you're interested. And you can just see the intensity in the passion. He almost comes across too intense sometimes, how intense he is. And, but he probably did more to make a bridge between Islam and Christianity than any man besides Jesus. I, mean, I can't, there, there probably isn't another person out there that did as much to help other Muslims come to know Jesus as Nabil. So there are many things to take away from this book um, and Nabil's life, but I think most importantly is that the only way that you can be a light for Jesus is that if you love people around you and you answer people, not questions. Talked about that at the beginning, that the... The other person that he spoke with, that Nabil worked with, who was much older than him, who died this year, was Ravi Zacharias. And his mentality, every time he went and spoke somewhere, was, we are here not to answer questions, but to answer people. That there's a real person behind every question, even if it sounds like a jerk question, that there's a heart that's hurting behind it. And... That's certainly how David was a friend to Nabil. That that's where it all spawned from was David was he was doing everything right, you know, he was there reading his Bible, he was acting like a Christian that drew Nabil to him, but in the end, if David hadn't been a friend to Nabil, which is what he needed first, Nabil never would have became a Christian. And that was Nabil's attitude, too, was that you have to make a friendship. You have to be, uh, have a relationship with someone before you can begin to talk about things as deep as eternity. All right, that is it for Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And I will continue to put the chapters up until we're finished with it. All right, thanks, guys.